welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time to check us out here. My guest today is Sahaj Tikatin. I think I said that right. He's the front man for the band Raw. Uh, he's also doing a lot of collaboration with some very big name artists like Tommy Vex from Bad Wolves, uh, LeJohn Witherspoon of Seven Dust, the band Starset, and of course, Motley Crue. So we'll get into all of this, plus talk about the curse of Raw, as Sahaj calls it, the struggles the band had, uh, but as well as their success, plus the meaning behind their new single, Intercorrupted, and a lot more. So check this out. Welcome, Sahaj Tikatin. I practiced that. Did I say it right? You did. It All right. Like stick it in. It's what? It's like stick it in. Stick it. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, and I figured this out. You said it's like a, it's a Russian, Russian Jewish father. That's the last name. But your, your first name is actually, that's not your birth name. It was some sort of name that was uh, sent from India at this like meditation center. I, I don't know. I'll let you tell the story. I'll probably screw it up. Yeah. So as far as the name goes, my, my given name, my mother named me Daniel. Okay. But uh, it was, it was sort of those, one of those weird things where like, I grew up never really feeling like a Danny. Okay. And it just, I don't know. It never fit. It yeah. just always was something very strange. Um. And uh, I met this girl when I was 19 years old who was like a world traveler meditator chick and super into meditation and, and doing drugs and everything. And I, I sort of fell in love with her and, and we ended up uh, sort of having this tumultuous relationship where I, uh, I, I matured against my will because she was sort of a terrible girlfriend. But um, <laughs> in the process, been there. I studied, yeah, in the process, I studied uh meditation with her and started doing stuff like that. And ultimately it ended up with me um, and taking what's called sannyas, which was uh, uh, followers of this guy called Osho Rajneesh. Hmm. And um, he, he was alive at the time that I took it and, but he died shortly after, but in the, in the interim, I got, I got a new name and I actually traveled to India shortly after he died. Um, but the, uh, but the name that they gave me was Amrit Sahaj. So Amrit mm. is sort of like a surname, like in like we have Mr. and Mrs., but yeah. in, in Sanskrit, they have more than one. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is Amrit. So Amrit meant eternal and Sahaj meant uh, spontaneity. And I thought that was a pretty cool name for a musician. And it felt very much like me. I don't know. It was one of those weird things. They gave me the name and I'm not really like a weird spiritual energy guy but um when they said the name out loud i, I sort of laughed for like 15 minutes like <laughs> you know heard my real name <laughs> for the first time you know so you don't so, do the meditation and all that stuff now then i mean so yes and no so so there's you know there's sort of like uh, we're gonna get deep already huh I, so, <laughs> so the first so the first thing that 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 you know with meditation at least for me when I started going deep on it, um, you realize that music is a very high frequency, but it's not the highest frequency, mm -hmm. right? So there's there's sort of like a spiritual vibration, if you will, that's higher than music. And, um, and what I mean by that is sort of like um, when you hear about like Eastern philosophies and Buddhism, all that stuff, there's always sort of this talk about being of the world, but not in the world, being in the world, but not of the world and sort of like being beyond the um the mental attachments the 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 you know this is all stuff that gets very complicated quickly but because you know in like christianity there's a lot of things where people are like oh you give up your well your worldly possessions and live a pious life and that but that's 
that's sort of a bad symbol of what it is that it started it all. And when it started it all, it was all about sort of like just understanding your, your attachments as your emotional attachments, your mental attachments, your pre-programming that you get as a child when you work, you know, when, and when you grow up and turn into an adult, all of a sudden your, you know, your brain is functioning on a level that's automatic as opposed to free. So basically through meditation and stuff like that, you're supposed to be able to become more aware of when you're being free and when you're being on autopilot. And so for me, um, the meditation that I started to dive into was really illustrating that. But the side effect of that was sort of me understanding that there was this other universe that was sort of cooler than music. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but, but it just, there was something more sort of, beautiful in the universe than just music. Um, So when I became a full-time musician and a professional musician, there was a little bit of a compromise I had to make because there was no way to um, really, really be in tune with music, but also still sort of in the back of your head feel like, well, this isn't even, that's not the end of the road. So I sort of had to make it the end of the road for me. I had to sort of decide that my form of meditation was going to be music and that I was going to try and practice through music and see if I can get glimpses into the, you know, the higher, higher levels while using music. Now, of course, music is an intrinsic part of any like Eastern uh, meditation and stuff like that, but it, but it's always just a tool you use to get somewhere. Mm. Whereas like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to reproduce. Yeah. And by the way, when I say I'm trying to do this, with 20% of the songs, the other 80% of the songs, I'm just trying to get on the radio and make cookie <laughs> songs. But the sure, 20% yeah. of the of the raw catalog that has, you know, like a poet's dream or crawling to the sky, these kind of songs that are literally or undertaken that are literally just poems designed to sort of create a, a landscape within you. Um, those songs are what I'm talking about here. So there was a little bit of a sacrifice. So to answer your question, I don't really sit down and meditate like I used to, and I don't practice it, but there are times when I'm writing certain kinds of music, depending on the band, depending on the artist, where I feel that I'm touching something immortal. Yeah. And that is the part that is um, higher in vibration. Yeah. Well, so, and I, yeah, cause I think there's different forms of meditation. I mean, I remember somebody telling me that even just taking a walk can be meditation. If you're focusing on the, the, you know, left foot, right foot, left, that, that it's like being in the moment, I would say for, for a lot of meditation, it's just, you know, being in there cause we're so distracted in this world with everything that's going on. It's like, it's hard for us to like really be in the moment or like you said, to this higher spiritual level. So yeah, my favorite analogy was always the, the, the sky analogy, the clouds in the sky. So when you're sort of unconscious and you're just dealing with all the garbage that you're dealing with all day, day and night, it's a cloudy day. It's just cloudy. There are clouds passing all the time. You're so focused on the clouds that you forget that there's a sky behind it. Right. And the more that you allow the clouds to pass, the more you can see the sky, the clearer it gets. So the, so the practice of meditation is letting the clouds pass without actually trying to focus on them, to focus on the sky beyond the clouds. And that analogy to me has always been beautiful because it's that thing where it really takes an enormous amount of effort to not do anything. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> so That's being what, in the yeah. present, 
being it's in the hard. present, of course, is the is the ultimate goal. But you know, that's one of those things. It's like, oh, just play an Eddie Van Halen solo. You yeah. know, it's like there's no you don't just sit down and do it. it yeah, takes no, it takes practice. Yeah, I used to take like meditation classes. I remember my teacher was like, "You have monkey brain," you know, because I just couldn't like I can't focus. It's like hard to just relax. It's it's hard to yeah. turn your brain up. But that's what you try. But anyways, yeah, let's talk about music a little bit. So sure. you started getting into music at a. It sounds like a very young age, like. You first, one of the first things you did was you sang the solos in uh, Charlie Daniels fiddle solo band. You, you were like humming that. But then the, the really interesting one was where you, t- you tell the story about how your brother brought, brought home this like jazz fusion album and you were like wow. acting out all the different, you thought like the characters and you kind of made it almost like a, like a play. It sounds like, or like you're kind of acting out what the singers were doing. Yeah. I mean, I was super duper young and my dad, my brother, Marcus, brought home a record called The Romantic Warrior by a band called uh, Return to Forever. Now, for anyone who's a musician and like a musician's musician, this band had like the most insane people in it. So it had Chikoria playing uh, piano. It had Stanley Clark playing drums. I mean, playing bass. It had Al Demiola playing guitar and it had Lenny White playing drums. This combination of like apex predators when it comes to musicianship had made this record. And what was amazing to me at five or six or seven years old was they really did. And maybe, you know, obviously I'm a kid, so I'm sort of fantasizing it anyway, but they named each song based around, it was almost like the cover art. I felt like the cover art came before the album, which of course it didn't. <laughs> but in my brain, yeah. the cover was this incredible knight and he was the romantic warrior. So there was this entire, you know, every song had the majestic dance was one. The jester versus the tyrant was another one. Like they had these cartoonish titles and it was just this thing where I was so obsessed with the melodicism that was connecting with me that I was able to invent sort of a, a dialogue between the instruments and create this storyline, which I think they did consciously. I don't think, you know, there's, there's certainly a beginning, a middle and end with you read the track list, mm-hmm. you know, because the final thing is the duel between the tyrant and the jester. It's like, you know, it ends like an action movie. So hmm. um, for me, that was, that was the beginning. And, and immediately after discovering that, was when I discovered um, both Zenyata Mandata by The Police and Security by Peter Gabriel. So those two mm. records right there were direct descendants of my love for Return to Forever. And what's weird is later, 20 years later, I read an article by Sting where he said the only two artists that ever changed his life watching them live was Jimi Hendrix in Newcastle and seeing Return to Forever. And I thought <laughs> that was the craziest thing ever. That is yeah. crazy. Like, yeah. It just blew my mind. Did you ever meet Peter Gabriel or or Sting or either any of those guys? Your so, heroes? The only one out of that entire camp that I ever met ever was Tony Levin, who was the bass player for Peter Gabriel for many, many, many years. He okay. was on that security album all the way up until most recently, you know. Uh, so I met Tony Levin because he used to live in Woodstock, New York. So I met him a bunch of times when I was up there working. Mm. And um, I never, I met Sting Handshake, met him at Carnegie Hall and then another time at a show. But it was like, it was like, oh, nice to meet you. Blah. And that was it. Never had a conversation. Mm. You know, he, I don't know if he knows I exist, although we did do a police cover that his manager, Miles Copeland, had to uh, 
approve. Sure. So there is a chance that he did. He's he's heard my voice, but um, never got to have a conversation with him. Never got to, you know, meet Peter Gabriel or my other idols, which were you two mm. and um, or Prince. Those are all like my my sort of like pre hard rock idols. OK, the cool thing about the hard rock idols is that I've pretty much met every one of those. So I'm oh, pretty stoked on that. That's really cool. Yeah. So you started this is interesting. You started singing in the Glee Club in junior high and you would get like called for all the solos and you didn't like that because the other kids kind of resented you. So eventually you just got so tired of it that you quit. Like how did your teacher and your parents let you quit? If you had such an amazing gift, my parents, um, I was the youngest of six and everyone else were, were already musicians and artists in some capacity. They were mm. dancers and performers in some capacity. I don't think they felt by the time they got to me that they had the need or the desire to sort of shape my conclusions when it came to stuff like that. Mm. So my mom really may had nothing to say about me quitting uh, the Glee club. The teacher, I remember her name was Mrs. Lehman. Uh, she was very upset yeah. because oh, dang. she basically in, I remember in sixth grade, she, she really, she pulled me aside and she said, I don't understand why you don't want to do this. This is so easy for you. And I said, you know, and I was, I was a fat kid and I was just really trying, um, I wanted to be cool so bad that I just didn't think singing solos in Glee Club was cool. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't mind. I did a couple of plays, um, one of which was West Side Story. And I crushed that. I had like a blast doing it. But um, the Glee Club thing was like, you know, singing Climb Every Mountain in, 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 a, in, a, in an auditorium. And it was just sort of the stuff that I was just like. I know I just didn't I, I was already starting to rebel. I was starting to get into hip hop. I was starting to do graffiti. I was starting to break dance, all of that stuff, all at that time. And um it just got pretty uncool pretty quick. Huh. To the point that when I went to high school, I didn't audition. I auditioned for singing and I auditioned for painting. And I got in for both. Right. But I chose painting. Yeah. And then you, and then you met some guy there that you, you were in a band with called cross cross of snow. Is that what it was called in the early nineties? And then, but then, so then, uh, I don't know if you broke up or, but eventually you meet this, tell me this story. You, you met this guy who was like a hedge fund trader and he was kind of like your mentor and he kind of bought you like a recording studio and let you live in his basement. Like, how do you find somebody like, I want to find someone like that, that just like takes me under their wing and like, help. I mean, that, that must, he's like a gift from God, right? I mean, having that kind of help. That yeah. Well, you know, it, uh, I'm, I'm a, a weird person, even to this day, I've never really looked at fortune, like good fortune hmm. as like something I earned. So when things good have happened to me, I sort of, I sort of take the perspective of, um, I don't want to fuck this up. I don't want to take this for granted. Right. And I don't want to, um, dote on it at all. I want to, I want to utilize that moment to the most that I can. Um, my sister, Nancy, who's been in, uh, my sister, Rachel has been in a million movies, but my, yeah, my sister, so cool. Nancy, my sister, Nancy has also been in some movies, but she's also been on Broadway for many years and she was dating this guy. And uh, they didn't date for very long, but in the process, she introduced him to me and he was a hedge fund trader in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he basically was like, you know, um, I want to build a studio in my house 
Um, so can you find me the stuff to do that? And he gave me a check for $13,000 and said, you know, and I, and I ordered, I made my first order in 1994. I made my first order to Sweetwater Sound, which is now, of course, a massive company, but they were a small company back then. And I did an online order because they didn't charge sales tax. And I bought an ADAT and a Mackie 24 by eight console. And we started a recording studio in his house in Greenwich. Um, cut to <clears throat> cut to a few years later, and we've upgraded significantly. Now we have three Tascam D88s, and we have an additional expansion to the mixer. So it was 48 by eight, and then all this outboard gear and speakers and and the NS10s that I still have at my studio here. Hmm. Um, and he, you know, he basically just bought this stuff put it in the bottom, you know, 8,000 square foot house. He put the the studio on the bottom uh, floor of it. And I basically had the entire floor. It was just me and him. Did you live there? Did you live in the basement? I lived there for three years. Didn't know why. Did he really believe in your music or he just wanted to do this as a hobby or like, what was his reason? I think it became, well, first of all, I think it became sort of a dual thing, right? Cause I was the, uh, I was his Cato Kalen. I was the guy he hung out with and, and, uh, that's awesome. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And I, and I had fun. Um, we did a lot of really, really fun stuff Yeah, and, um, he would, you know, he just sort of, he was, I was non threatening to him. Okay. I didn't, I, I always, as I said before, with opportunity, I always go out of my way. So I never was like a burden on him. I didn't cost him money. I would try and put money in his pocket whenever I could. Mm. Um, and he bought all this gear obviously, you know, for me, but it was his and there was no misunderstanding about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I taught myself how to, you know, the basics of engineering and producing there. Um, and this is all pre pro tools. So when I was recording, I was recording takes, you know, live. And if I didn't do it good, I just had to do it again. It wasn't like I could stack 20 takes and then mm. pick the best one. I had, I had, I had only had 24 channels for a mm. whole, for a whole recording. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was pretty crazy, but That's it was crazy. really, really a great lesson. Um, and by the time I got signed to my first real record deal, um, I was fairly equipped based just because of what I had learned through him. Sure. So why did you explain the, the name, uh, raw? It's, it's your name, the band after the sun, the Egyptian sun God, is that correct? Yeah. Or, but do you think there was ever a problem? Cause I noticed it's like so annoying whenever I try to type in your, your guys's band on like Spotify or even just like on Google, it always will send a, like any website. I go like concert archives. I'm trying to see what shows you guys have done. And I'm like, RA and it just gives you this giant list. I'm like, no, that's the band. That's it. RA. And then like, did you find that like uh, annoying as well? Well, obviously when we invented the, uh, the name, it was 1998. Yeah. So there wasn't algorithms. Algorithms were driving exactly 0% of people's searches at that point, at least and there were, you know, at, there was nobody really using the internet mm-hmm. to find us. Okay. So, um, and even if they did, I, I, I still feel like it was easier back then than it is now. But, but anyway, the, you know, the, the cool part of um, having that name in the old days was that if you looked on a poster and there was a whole bunch of bands, you know, there would be bands that had one or two words or just long words. You know, if you looked at a poster and it said Lincoln Park system of a down, da, 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 da. but if it just said raw, it always stuck out because it was so oh. short. Oh. And oftentimes and oftentimes in the list, it was the biggest thing because each band had a, a finite amount of space okay. to fill up. So we would oh. fill up the listing. So we were always smart. noticed the band. 
Um, but of course, that backfired horribly as soon as real audio and rheumatoid arthritis and all of the things <laughs> that start with R A became yeah. the dominant things or in Google search. What about like raw sushi, the restaurant? I don't know if you guys have those down here. It's like a, a chain. Does that one get a, a, a you, there's no uh, lawsuits? I don't, you can... I don't find that very much. And okay. then if you go to Spotify, a lot of times it's based on your search history. So if mm. you're if you're a pop chick, then you might search Rachel Watserface and Rachel Platten might be the person that comes up when you put up raw, mm -hmm. you know, like I know a lot of friends in the rock universe that will, they'll get rage against the machine or Ramstein before raw, the band starts to show up. So the cool thing about Spotify is um, for each person, it's individual. So if you search our place, if you search us multiple times, eventually it starts showing you, us all the time because mm -hmm. it remembers where you've been the most. So yeah. now, like on my own personal Spotify, if I go on, there's always our, the raw thing is always there. Okay. Yeah. And another uh, shortcut I found is like either typing in the, the name of an album or a song will also, right. That always and that leads me to the, to the most recent single, because I, I, I literally named the song. I mean, obviously when I was writing it, I wrote it under, the criteria of a cool name, but then when it came to actually choosing a single and sort of naming the album, I was consistent with intercorrupted because it's not a real word. So yeah, oh, if, that's you, smart. if you search intercorrupted on Spotify, exactly zero things come up except us. Yeah, no. And I love that song. Yeah, I want to get to that too, but so going back to like how you guys got signed, this was like kind of a crazy story too, that you kind of had them, you didn't own the masters, but you were like selling the records illegally and then you had to buy them back or something. What was the story with that? So the way we got away with this is basically that um, <clears throat> the, the first real label we signed to was a subsidiary of Sony called Adel America. So Adel in Germany is the largest independent record company in all of Europe. Hmm. It's called Adele. Okay. So, that was huge at the time, but they decided, you know what, we're going to take a stab at the U.S. And they created Adel America. And that was the label that we signed to first. Now, the cool thing about that was that there weren't a lot of artists on us and there was we were supposedly a priority. But even before we finished our record, the record company pulled out of the U.S. and bank and, and closed down the label. So the label got closed before we ever put out a single song and I was stuck with these masters that Sony owned that I couldn't use for anything, but that had my best songs on. Them. So my option was either go back into the studio, re-record them all. Or when I talked to my attorney, he was like, you know what? This is so small and so under the radar. We might be able to get away with it as long, you know, for a period of time, until it gets big enough mm -hmm. and then we'll deal with it then. Yeah. So basically what we did is we started set, we made a deal with a, a company out of Phoenix, Arizona, that was a distribution company. And they ended up putting the record in like Newberry comics up, up Northeast. And um, WAF was spinning uh, do you call my name, which was, um, you know, mistress Carrie was the, the DJ who found us and discovered us and put us on the air and sort of like, you know, it was one of those weird, those fairy tale stories where somebody plays a song and the phones light up and da 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 all the stuff that doesn't happen anymore. 
anymore, you mm-hmm. know, but basically it was one of those things where like no one knew us. We had no following and somebody played a song and the phones light up. And then oh. uh, two months later, we're selling 20,000 records of this EP that we put out on our own that we didn't own. Um, so when it got to the point where we were getting offers and we were figuring out where we were going to go for a label and we were talking to Universal Republic, uh, my attorney was like, look, I'm going to draw you up a document. We're going to connect with the guy at um, at uh, at Sony and you need to buy your master's back. And I was like, OK, so I, I arranged the meeting. I drive downtown in a cab with a check for a certified check for fifteen thousand dollars and gave him fifteen thousand dollars. He signed the paperwork, brought the paperwork back up, literally got in a cab, rode the 20 minute ride uptown to 57th Street and 7th walked upstairs and signed an $850,000 record deal with Universal Republic. Wow. So there was that short time in the middle where you were unsigned. <laughs> right. The 20, I was unsigned for 20 minutes. Yeah. So then they released the album. You guys get a song on uh carry Two. you, uh, you got some singles no, no, on the no, radio the carry Two thing. But that was before, two right? Is, is on Adel America. Okay. So that, that was before. So that, that guy used some exposure though. Yeah. That was literally a one-off okay. just for, um, just for that film. Right. So, but then you, yeah, so you get the deal, you get songs on the radio, you're, you're doing tours, you're opening for Seether and Stone Sour. And this is interesting. I love, cause I interviewed a uh, PJ Farley. I love that guy. I love, and I'm a big trickster fan, but I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated that you, you reached out to him to be in the band and he turned you down. Cause like, I always thought that there was kind of this like hair band discrimination back then in the nineties, almost like where people like, you know, they didn't want to be associated, but you actually wanted him in the band. He's the one that turned you down. And then he, then, then you reached out to him again um, after you were touring. Cause he didn't, did he not believe that you guys were going to make it or something? Or he didn't, he just wanted to. I think, I think in, in the initial approach, there just was no, you know, PJ was already at a point where if he was going to do sort of sideman gigs, he was going to get paid. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have money to pay anybody mm. at the point at which we, this is prior to going to Boston and yeah. prior to sort of blowing up on the radio and prior to doing all that stuff. So we had no money. And I think he just looked at it from the perspective of, well, I can't, um, I can't, you know, really just jump out of everything else that I'm doing and join your band without some sort of paycheck. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just couldn't afford that. So he passed on it. We ended up using someone else who was a friend of Mistress Carrie and WAF. And um, he was a cool dude. And I, I still love him to this day, but uh, there are a variety of things happened that made it an unworkable work, you know, business relationship. And we ended up parting our ways and, I called PJ and now I'm calling PJ. We're already on tour with stone sour in a tour bus making money. Nice. So I was able to give him a, a salary in the beginning oh, that's and cool. he just literally stopped everything he was doing and jumped in a plane and came out. But did you know of his, like that he was in trickster and you were like, yeah, I don't care. Like he's a good. Yeah, bass I didn't player. really care about that. I actually cool. had gone to a, a, pl- a place at one at the time location was sort of relevant. Yeah. Okay. So I was living in New Jersey and Farley was living in New Jersey and scooter was living in New Jersey and Ben was relocating to New Jersey in order to do all this stuff. So um, that was relevant. And I'd watched him, you know, play in 40 foot Ringo. Bands. Yeah. No, 40 foot Ringo, but also I watched him play just cover band. I think it was Sugar oh, cool. Belly or something okay. like that. Yeah. And he played in cover bands. Uh, and I, and I was just like, this guy's pocket is really good. Mm. And I also, um, you know, thought he was a decent enough singer that he could do some backgrounds. Mm. And uh, we ended up, you know, it, it was sort of, 
one of those things where he learned the songs so fast. Like I called him and he was out like four days later and we played the first show with him and he knew every song. So I was like, oh, this is a guy who's in a cover band. He learns song every five seconds. That's good. So he literally learned all of our songs in like two days. And it was, it was crazy, but I mean, you know, and his personality immediately was the opposite of, <coughs> of what I had had in the sense that the, the first guy we had was really sort of like excited about being on tour and like the whole tour life thing was really like all he was about. Whereas Farley came in and he'd already, he'd already done it all, mm-hmm. you know, and he was a professional and he sort of knew what to expect. And there wasn't a lot about touring. You know, he, he was an anchor for me still is to this mm-hmm. day. He's still the guy that like keeps me from losing it when there's a lot of pressure, even with uh, various aspects of touring or playing shows. Like even when we did Shiprock earlier this year or earlier in 20, um, he just made it easier. That's cool. That guy. Yeah. So then your second album, um, duality, you wrote 36 songs for this and you picked the best ones. Um, so the single fallen angels, is it true that song was inspired by, uh, Kevin Smith's movie dogma? No, it's not, but here's, oh. here's what, here's why that's a thing. Okay. So first of all, the song is inspired by two very, very important songs to me. So, the first song is uh, um, Eyes of a Stranger by Queensryche. Oh, great song. The, it's actually Operation Modern Crime in general. So that, that whole record, the intro to it, the way that it goes into the beginning of uh, Operation Modern Crime at the beginning, the, that whole thing is, is literally how Fallen Angels starts. So Fallen Angels starts with the talking, and then it starts with the snare thing, and then it goes into the song. Most people never realized that it was literally structured like the beginning of Operation oh, Mindcrime. I didn't think and of that. And the riff itself, the actual <laughs> verse riff, was based on a band that I was obsessed with very early on that most people didn't know, um, but everyone knows now, and it was Mr. Bungle. Oh, so I love was, them. Yeah. yeah, so there was a song called Travolta on, on Carnival, which was a very, 1989, I think, was the record. And uh, I was obsessed with that groove. And the, the, the Travolta song is like, voodoo way. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, that one. And then that was the, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a song like that. And that's what Fallen Angels verse is based on. Oh, okay. So were you a fan of that movie at all? Or is that just total Wikipedia BS? So what happened with the movie is, is that shortly after, shortly after Duality came out, some guy on the internet put scenes from Dogma and timed it with Fallen Angels. Okay, weird. Sense because obviously they go together. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So then explain this. I This is a crazy story. I mean, I, I interview a lot of musicians. I've never heard a story like this. So you guys release the record, and then later you find out there's an error in the song, like a skip on the CD. And so you had to, like, recall all these CDs. And Best Buy, they wouldn't sell it, or they wouldn't. Uh, so that, that hurts your sales, right? Yeah, so... Uh, we call this the curse of raw basically because oh. we have uh we have a few stories where we have like we're poised to do really cool things and then somehow something sort of out of our, out of our control screws everything up um the first one on duality was uh they manufactured the cd and then avery Lippman called me and was like hey uh well just gotta let you know we have a digital glitch in the first 40 seconds of uh, of the album and i'm like oh okay so what do we do and he's like well some of the vendors are gonna you know just offer people to get come back and get a replacement um but 
you know, Best Buy is not going to sell a defective CD, so they have to pull it off the shelves. And I was like, Mm. wow. And so basically just to make it make sense in a business sense, we scanned about 9,000 CDs the first week of that period, which, which put us at about 140, somewhere in that range on the one on the top 200 billboard chart. And um, the very next week when Best Buy came in, we did 9,000 again. So Hmm. what that means is more likely than not, we would have done probably 12 or 13,000 the first week. Had yeah. Best Buy been in there. yeah. And the difference between 9,000 and 13,000 on the billboard that year would have been the difference between 140 and number 60. Oh, so we would have man. literally been in the top 100, almost uh. top 50. Had we gotten that 13,000, it would have literally changed <sighs> the entire dialogue sucks. of how people yeah. talked about the band. Right. And radio and everything. And yeah, and so, then right. And then the other thing on that album was that you guys did a was this the one where you had the police cover everything, every little thing she does is magic? This is interesting. You were saying that a lot of people thought it was the police, so their sales spiked and people weren't buying your version. But I listen, your version's like heavier. I, I like I mean you're they're both good versions, but I mean it does well, sound here's here's so here's a, an interesting coincidence, okay? Um, and I'm not sure that this plays out time-wise, but it might just have been in people's psyche. Okay. In the movie Demolition Man. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. Right? Yes. And uh, Rob Schneider, Sting, Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Thing redid the song Demolition Man, which is a police song, with Dave Navarro. So we did like a hard rock version of Demolition Man. Okay. So when our song came out, there were people who were like, oh, I really like this. It's like, it must be like a rock version that Sting did. Um, and so they, so basically, you know, Universal okay. were, we're very, very heavy in data. Like they know everything about data research. So mm-hmm. they, were, they were watching all the numbers. But the reason why that's the second instance of the rockers is because Fallen Angels was actually going up the chart pretty convincingly. Mm. And it was going up. We were already in the mid-20s. And Dave Downey, the uh, the radio guy, was making the push. And then out of nowhere in Cincinnati, uh, this radio station started playing on an, a hot AC station, started playing every little thing. And it went bananas. And it went crazy. So Universal was like, wait, stop the presses. This is on hot AC. This is a much bigger format. This is mm. much more important. And they literally stopped what everybody was mm. doing on the Fallen Angels side and focused on that. So that killed the single a little bit. And then the other thing, I oh mean, there's so many, but like, um, well, then there's the raw curse as it, as it applies to uh, what I just remembered it. I can't remember what it was, but there's another, there's another time where it sort of was like completely out of our control. Mm. Oh, when we signed a, we signed a deal with a company called cement shoes records <laughs> and the guy offered us $125,000 and a whole thing. And we've got to the point where we had what's called execution copies of the con- contract where you're just supposed to sign it. And we signed ours and he never signed his, but he put our record out anyway. Huh. And so we ended up in a situation where he had released our live record and our other record wasn't going to come out. And it all just like fell apart at the last second. Uh. But the guy still released the album. And 
Like huh. it was a full on nightmare. Wow. That like, sounds just, like a nightmare. It, it sucked up two years, like really good two years of what we were doing from Ugh. 06 to 08. We could have been out touring and, and sort of marketing what we were doing, but we didn't, uh, we didn't get a chance to. That's lame. So that yeah. first tour you did, um, you were, I think you were married or in a relationship at the time and you were really stressed out about your voice and you didn't do any of the rock star stuff, like getting drunk and going crazy with girls. And, and then the, but then the second tour you did that stuff, but then you're like, this isn't me, right? You kind of experimented yeah, so, with that and it just wasn't your thing. So basically, uh, first of all, I'm sort of like a serial monogamist. So that's part of the problem too. I mean, I'm just not, but you know, the side effect of sort of um, being on tour and watching all the other bands just be sort of crazy uh, and not being able to partake is that by the time I was able to partake several years later, uh, it sort of seemed dumb. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, Oh my God, I can't wait to do this for three years. It was like, all right, let me try it. And I was like, okay, now I did it. Big deal. None of it stuck to me because yeah. You know, first of all, the anxiety of singing well is still a thing to this day. Okay. You know, playing, performing a show and having, <clears throat> you know, my voice in good health is, um, it, you know, these aren't songs that you can just wait. You know, I used to get so mad at Sean from Seether because Sean would do all kinds of crazy partying all night after a show, be crazy, wake up at four o'clock in the afternoon, smoke a cigarette, get on stage and sound check and sound perfect. And just, sound, you know, obviously he's, he's singing scratchy Nirvana-esque vocals, but still, you know, it was just like, oh man, I can't, I can't, I like, I needed a humidifier. Mm. I was like with Celine Dion and the thing and writing on a chalkboard. So I didn't <laughs> use my voice and oh, it, wow. was a, it was a nightmare. <laughs> like it was just a nightmare, huh. but you know, you can't sing the chorus and rectifier as the second song in a show without having your voice. Yeah. You just, there's no, you can't half-ass any of these. Right. So no. it just became one of those things where it's like, geez, I'm doing six shows a week. And I'm singing my face off. I got to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Well, so then, but yeah, and then you did, like you said, you're monogamous. So now you're in a relationship and you had this solo record that you wrote the songs about uh, your wife. And I listened to some of this today. These are good songs. I mean, it's a little departure from raw, but I mean, it's like, how did, did you not really try to promote that very much? Or why do you think that didn't, I didn't take off? I didn't, you know, the, 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 the sad sort of truth about, um, not only raw, but my own career in general is, is that I, I learn everything late. Mm. So promotion is one of those things that I didn't really understand. I didn't understand how it worked. Mm. You know, obviously by the time 2012 rolled around, which is when I put that record out, the landscape had changed dramatically and I didn't know what it was. Mm. I literally didn't really know how to promote and market something on the internet. I just had no clue. I knew how to make a good record. I knew how to put it out, yeah. but I didn't know how to get anybody to listen to it. Mm. Um, the truth with that record is, is that uh, there are, you know, that was supposed to be sort of my, um, my sting John Mayer exorcism. I just wanted to get all of that stuff out of my system. And plus I had written these songs for my wife um, when I met her and we was just starting to date. And I, I wrote these songs with the, um, Sort of, sort of without, they were out of my control. They really just came out. You know, mm. I, I loved there so much back in, at that time that I could not control myself. Huh. Like I had to write these songs. So by the time I was done with the songs, I had seven of them. And I was like, geez, if I write five more, I got a record. So I just wrote five more songs and made the album 12 songs. And 
and and that was that. And Scooter, same, the raw drummer played on the whole thing and we mm-hmm. had a blast and we both sort of got into it. I think people will rediscover that yeah. at some point. I might even go back and remix those songs and re-release it or yeah. do something. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's good stuff. You've done, and then you've done, yeah, you've done a lot of this like producer and co-songwriting stuff. I got to ask you about this. Did you work on, or did you write a song or two or several with the Black Moods? Cause that's one of my favorite bands. And I saw that and I was like, wait, what song did he write? I, I don't wrote, know which one. I wrote one song with them and it has to do, maybe it's called when it rains or something like that. It's okay. like the last song on the medicine, not the last album, but maybe the album before medicine. It. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I don't yeah. know their albums by name, but I'm, I talked to them cause I was, they actually were really cool and helpful when we were in Arizona shooting our video. They let us shoot our photo shoot the raw photo shoot at their rehearsal space. Oh, but yeah. Okay. Josh is awesome. I love those guys. I think yeah. they're really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Cause that was like before, I mean, they're more, you know, nationally known now, but back in 2016 or 2015, I mean, they were super more local. So, and then you've gone on to work with all these big bands, Diamante stitched up heart. And uh, are you doing something with bad wolves or did you do something with them? <clears throat> well, I wrote with Tommy vexed two songs um, that were, technically bad wolf songs but obviously now i don't know what they are oh, okay <laughs> because he's not in the band so i think he may be taking those songs with him okay into whatever he's gonna do um i know one of them uh i love like one of them is like just a crushing awesome radio song so oh. I'm, hoping, I'm hoping he puts that out he told me what he was planning to do with it i don't want to speak on it because i don't want to give up anything but oh um but but yeah, he, he, um, he's going to do that. Um, I've known, you know, I know doc from bad wolves really, really well. Um, and so there's, you know, I don't know where all of that's going to end up. Uh, but the, but yeah, the the sort of, sort of the, the, the two biggest projects that I have right now that I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, I did the stuff with Motley Crue. I did songs with them, but, um, right now the two projects that I'm sort of super hyper-focused on other than raw are uh star set and um i'm doing lejean witherspoon's solo record right from is, seven dust yeah from yeah. seven dust so yeah those are the two those are the two ones I okay put all my, i put my eggs in both of those baskets and it's funny too because they're they're you know i was talking to lj recently he was here at my house and i realized that you know my relationship with dustin is sort of like what i've helped to create mm-hmm. and with with lj it's like who created me <laughs> So it's like, there's so much, you know, there's so many things that are, uh, you know, Seven Dust was one of those bands that when we were starting out, you know, you would say, oh, okay, uh, we were really good tonight. We did a really good show. But what does that mean if we're going on with Seven Dust? You know what I mean? Like, we could, it doesn't matter how good we were. We had to measure it by the Seven Dust bar. Are we as good as that live? And that was sort of, you know, the the thing. And then I, I always tell about the first show we played in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And it was a big radio show and Disturbed was on it and Seven Dust was on it. Um, Stereo Mud, Cinder, all these old bands. And we ended up uh, opening directly for, I think it was Seether too. So it was us, Seether, then um, Seven Dust and then uh, Disturbed. So I've been talking pretty consistently about Seven Dust for years. I mean, I loved Denial in 99. Like I was obsessed. So um, I'm standing there and I'm singing the second song, Rectifier, like I was saying, it's the second song. So I'm in Rectifier and I just turn left and the entire band of Seven Us is standing there watching us. And I'm just like, oh no, like I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God. 
don't sing anything wrong. Don't screw up the lyrics. Make all the notes. Don't be crazy. You know, and then uh, I came to find out many years later that LJ's favorite, one of LJ's favorite bands of all time was Ra, which was sort of crazy. Wow. And that's really cool. His wife were, you know, pretty, um, pretty uh, connected with the duality record because they were like meeting up together when that record was out. Oh. And um yeah, so now we're like best buds and he brought That's his family great. here and stuff like that. But but yeah, very excited about his record. His record has got, you know, it's all very not Seven Dust, oh. but it's all really Okay, well, definitely look for that. And then, yeah, so tell me about going back to the Motley Crue stuff that you did. You guys wrote three songs that ended up on the album. I think you actually wrote nine songs. They were all called The Dirt, and then you narrowed it down to the three. Uh, they, but... Him, Nikki and John wrote a bunch of songs called okay. The Dirt. Then we got together and we narrowed it down to three, but we only needed one. Yeah. So what happened was we finished all three and then they're like, you know what? We like all three. So, oh. and then we did a cover. They did the, like a virgin cover. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, um, so the, the fun part for me is, you know, I helped write those songs and arrange them and stuff like that. And then ultimately I sang all the background vocals on all of them. So that was really fun. That's super amazing. Yeah. So who did you actually sit down with? Cause I saw you like, you posted a picture of you and Vince and you're like, I finally get to meet Vince. And I'm like, well, but he, didn't he co-write the songs or, or how does it work? Like they take bits and pieces and put it together or. No, basically, um, and going back even to Motley Crue's history, uh, Nikki wrote most of the songs. Mm -hmm. So um, Nikki came over to my house and we started working on stuff and we just got into a really good flow. Um, And he became sort of like a, you know, a house member. He was at the house for like four months. And he was just constantly coming over and, you know, it'd be very, he was always a, an interesting guy to have around. You, you get the best, you know, I I always, you know, talk going back to like talking to Dave Draymond and talking to, the guys in corn and talking to the guys in seven dust and talking to the bands that I grew up with that I liked, you know, the, the theory of a dead man's and the Chevelles and all of those bands. Um, you get all the rock and roll stories, mm-hmm. but then you realize when you're talking to Nikki six, that you've never really actually heard a real <laughs> rock and roll story, like a real, a real rock and roll story from Nikki six makes all the other rock and roll stories really pretty amateurish. So you're, you're dealing with a whole other level of of craziness but um yeah he he was at the house a bunch of times and he was great and you know we still chat here and there together so what is he does he tell you rock and roll stories that are like not in the book or the or the movie the dirt because i mean that the book and that movie were like i mean i read the book first and then saw the movie but i mean it's both pretty crazy he he told me uh so many that i realized after fact that some of them were in the book and some of them weren't okay so there were stories you know until i until i sort of investigated it all you know me and him had a funny moment very early on because he started talking to me about saints of los angeles and all of these other songs and i was like dude i, I know home sweet home girls girl <laughs> girls and dr Fieldman. that's it really i don't know any other motley Crue songs and he was like and he so basically in the beginning i had to tell him that like when i was growing up the the kids that liked metallica and slayer didn't listen to motley crew and guns and roses like we were a different there was a different we were a different crew growing up right i was and the so, weirdo that liked it all i know i was like i was definitely the weirdo that liked it all but yeah you're you're yeah, right for a lot of people I guarantee, but you're significantly younger than me so you have sure. to remember we're talking about the early 80s here okay right so, yeah 
So in the early 80s, there's no, you know, you're on one team or the other. The guy with the feathered hair and the patches <laughs> with the Motley Crue was yeah. not hanging out with the dude with the short hair and the leather jacket that said Celtic Frost and Slayer. Sure. So um, anyway, the the moral of this story is, as I told him, I was like, look, you know, for me, the thing, my thing was Metallica. Like Metallica mm-hmm. was everything. Mm-hmm. James Hetfield taught me how to down pick. Like I wanted to be James Hetfield on stage with my band. And um so it became sort of a running joke. And anytime we would come up with something good, like some idea that was good, Nikki would be like, well, it's good. It's, I mean, it's not Metallica, but it's good. <laughs> you know. So he would always rub it in. And then yeah. one day he basically, one day he texted me and he said, hey, it'd be a couple of weeks since I'd seen him. He texted me and said, hey, I got you a present. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And he was like, yeah, it's James Hetfield related. And I'm like, if it's not James Hetfield himself, I'm not interested. And because he was always being a practical joker. So I wasn't quite sure where he was going with it, but he's like, no, 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 you're going to like it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So when he came to my house, he um, ended up giving me this James Trussart guitar. That was an Explorer, a Fender Explorer. Yeah. I'll show it to you. Wow. No, that's really cool. Like, so it's, it's actually James Hetfield's guitar that he, Oh, wow. That's really cool. Look at the finish. It's all alligator print. Oh, this is a James Trussart uh, Explorer and Trussart makes very, very expensive guitars by hands. Okay. Did he and make that he, um, specifically for James Hetfield? You're saying, well, the story goes like this. He made 10 of those guitars and immediately got a cease and desist letter from Gibson saying that you cannot call us an Explorer. You cannot make oh. this guitar. This is an infringement on our fucking whatever. Okay. And whatever. So he only made 10. I got that one. And James Hetfield has two. Oh, so, okay. So, only ten that, of them, so I have one of the ten that are made. That's a, on the planet. Oh, how did I don't even know? I need to ask how Nikki Six guy. He's Nikki Six. He just says, "Give me that." Nikki went to James Trussard to buy a bass. Okay, and saw that guitar and was like, "Hey, what's up with that guitar?" And oh, okay. just ended up buying it. That's super cool. What's a neat story? So let's talk about. We kind of touched a little bit on the the new raw song, Intercorrupted. Sure. But I love this song. It's got. I love the melodies. I don't even. I'm not musical. I don't know if it's melodies or harmonies, but there's like keyboards playing during the chorus. It's like a hook. I, I think this is the best raw song ever made in my opinion. I love it. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you think that. Yeah. For me personally, um, I was trying to create the best of raw in one song. Okay. I think you did so, it, you know, and also incorporate all the bands that I work with now. Right. Cause yeah. a lot of the bands, like one of the bands that I, mentioned before that I work with a lot of star set mm-hmm. and yeah. um, you know, that, that universe is loosely connected. There's a small wormhole between Dustin's universe and the raw universe. And um, what I like about what I've learned working with him is about what he would say, what he, he would use the term gravitas. And he always talks about sort of like this larger than life thing And I've always, you know, for me, it's always been about that on certain kinds of songs and then the literal opposite on other songs. I mean, you know, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day that with Ra, we sort of even from the very beginning had a wide palette. You know, there wasn't Mm -hmm. like just heavy songs or just like it wasn't always like it was like we could do a poppy song and then do something that's heavy and still be the same band, Mm -hmm. you know, especially as we continued past duality. I mean. I have a song on, on on critical mass about masturbating to Katy Perry. So there's, <laughs> there's no rules in terms of subject matter or feel or vibe. 
and songwriting. So when it came to doing Into Corrupted, I wanted to write something that made people feel like, oh, that's the band I remember, but also with the ability to possibly get on Octane and actually be considered a viable modern track. No, that's why I reached out because I was going through the list of rock album or rock uh, charted songs. And I was like, next, next. And then I heard this song. And then even my girlfriend was, she came out and she goes, Whoa, what's that song? That's really good. I was like, it is, isn't it? Right. It's really good. So, but explain to me the lyrics of this one, because this goes a little deeper. This is not about jerking off to Katy Perry. This is like some, some heavy stuff here, isn't it? It's about bringing children in the world and their expectations that the world's going to be all happy and roses. And then they find out actually reality sometimes can suck. And so I don't know. You, you can explain it better than I can. It's your song, but yeah, I mean, the way that I like to say it in the shortest firm, you know, in the shortest way is, is we all share the responsibility for creating the people we don't like. So when we're, you know, in, hmm. if you think about the last year or two of divisiveness and craziness with politics and all that stuff, people on the far left are just as responsible for creating the people on the far right as much as the people on the far right are responsible for creating the people on the far left. Because when you feed the extremes, they get stronger. So the more liberal you are, the more pissed off the other guy is. The more right-wing conservative you are, the more pissed off the liberal is. They're feeding off of each other, but they're doing it unconsciously. And what intercorrupted is, is that we have to accept our own, our, what, what's corrupted within ourselves before we can ever evolve beyond just the blind cycle of hatred, right? Because the second someone decides, oh, I'm doing this specifically, that's creating your reaction. My action here, my defiance, my lack of empathy and clarity is directly contributing to your inability to understand me. So in my, you know, I I moved from Los Angeles to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's a culture shock. You know, just, just, you know, and I'm, I'm a guy, I'm I'm half Puerto Rican, half Russian Jew from New York city. I've lived in LA for 10 years. I moved to the, the state that voted that, that was called for Trump the earliest. Right. So this is, this is, this is the, this is technically the reddest state in the country. Yet when I talk to all of our friends, we have tons of friends who are avid Trump supporters. When I talk to them consciously and with information and you find out it's so silly how many things we want that are exactly the same. There's literally nothing that is a big item that we don't want the same. What happens is we're simply fed the echo chamber right, left enough to where we prioritize the things that don't necessarily even amount to that much. So I agree with all this. Yeah. You're, so there's you're a spot lot on of, right now. There's, there's a lot of, you know, positioning and chess psychological chess being played by both sides. And what happens is whether you're reading Breitbart or you're watching MSNBC, you are a pawn in this game and you're being used to move the dialogue left or right based on which makes more money. Mm -hmm. So if you're at the end of the day, 
committed to watching MSNBC because you've now been indoctrinated into the far left idea of, you know, certain aspects of sensationalized socialism or whatever it is, or certain or, or conversely, if you only watch Fox News and only agree with Laura Ingram because she's the only one who speaks the truth you're also sort of dealing with a alternate reality that you're not aware of, but you're living in it as a consumer. You're being used as a customer. So they're literally creating ads and everything based on the fact that you have a perception and a perspective that they gave to you. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff very quickly sort of illustrates how we get divided. But the only way I believe you can end up being connected or or reconnected or evolve past the pettiness is if you spend enough time absor- uh, observing yourself, because you have hmm. to observe your, your behavior, your wants and needs before you can dissect the pieces and cut out the pieces that are really just there as an as a reflection of a movement that has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. So to you to, to make that a simpler analogy, when I'm here in Fort Wayne talking to people that I genuinely have known for 10 years and that I love, but they have wildly different political views, it's not that hard for me to speak to them with compassion and to actually learn different perspectives that I wouldn't be open to because I genuinely love them. But we live in a society now where we don't get that because 90% of our interaction online is with people we don't even know. So there's no empathy. There's no compassion. Why would there be? These are literally just robots, emotional, crazy people on the other side of the world who are typing in, in, you know, inanimate letters. Mm-hmm. And it, it becomes very easy to, to sort of, you know. Re- so, um, yeah, so not even paralyze getting in touch with yourself and and figuring out what what you need and what you want and what you think, but also listening to other people, not listening to different news or look at different articles, but actually just talk to people. And you're right. I think you find you have a lot more common ground with people. And a a lot of us agree on the same problems. We just maybe not always agree on the same solutions to the problems, but I think there's a lot more. But even to that point, a lot of the times, you know, people will parrot the solution that they've been told without understanding what their solution is. So people will be anti some policy or, you know, like people who are anti Trump are like, oh, his China policy was crazy. And the fact is, is he probably had pretty decent China policy and he did some good stuff in the Middle East. People have to understand that by the same token, we can't take that out of the things we didn't like about them too. Right. Like you have to be able to, you, I don't, um, you know, what always frustrates me is, is that people are willing to treat the rest of the world differently than they would want themselves to be treated, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing. If you can't, if you can't engage your, what your own wants and needs and respect level is for yourself, then you have no ability to be respectful for anyone else. Mm. Well said, very well said. That that was deeper. That was a good uh, analysis of that those song lyrics. So that's what that's kind of all about. Then, yeah, it's the thread. You know, like my and and if I were to you know a soundbite version of it is the last line of the chorus is everything comes down to the last line of the chorus and the last line of the chorus is it's too dark for the world to see the light between you and me. That's beautiful. That's literally, that's everything. really cool. 
Yeah, no, that's good. I, lo- I love that song. Like I, I think it's the best Raw song, so I hope people check it out. I hope it continues to uh, get airplay or Spotify playlists or whatever on movies and TV. I think that's kind of the big thing now, right, is getting on like a movie soundtrack or a TV show because nobody's buying, not very many people are unfortunately are buying records, right? Yeah, but that's who cares about buying records. What All I want is I want the people to be able to find our Spotify page and find us on YouTube. <laughs> so you type know? in Intercorrupted. So, You're the only yeah, one. That's the made up word. It. Plus, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to speak before it's out, but the album, you know, this record for me, like you said, that was the best song. I don't think that's even the best song on the record. Ooh, well, I'm excited you know? to hear so the rest me, of that. Yeah. I think I think there's there's stuff on this record that really sort of is irreverent mm-hmm. in some regards, but even hookier. Oh, you know, okay. My, my songwriting sort of chops are now hyper focused and refined because I write 15 to 20 songs a month. So it's like, there's so many bands that I work with and so many artists and I'm always sort of picking yeah. and choosing the things that I put in my toolbox. I, I think this record, you know, and also, you know, like as a singer, I feel comfortable in my, in my role um, as a top singer. Like I never liked being so oh, you're one of the best singers. Again, the way that I am, I take that as a, res- as, as a responsibility, but I think that with this record, people will listen to me singing and be like, well, yeah, like no one else really can do that. Yeah. Cause isn't it true? You, you, I don't think you do this anymore, but you did hold the record for the longest single note by a male vocalist in a song. You held a high B note for 24 seconds. Yeah. And it was sort of stupid because it wasn't, it wasn't intended. I mean, I still think I, I technically still give myself the credit because I did it in a show. It was a live show and it was on a live album. Um, And and the guy who broke it, did it on, in, on an album, you know, like did it in a studio. So Mm. I'm always suspect about guys holding a song. The guy held a note for 42 seconds on a a metal song, but um, which is possible. And, and, and I didn't do it on purpose anyway. the, The moral of the story is just, that became a thing. And I don't know, really know why, but it's cool ultimately, um, yeah, it's sort of a cool thing, but ultimately, you know, I'm just saying that like, I'm sort of okay in my skin right now as a singer. Yeah. And I feel like I don't have to really, I'm not really competing with anybody. No, but so, and then as a songwriter, do you find yourself, do you save the, the best songs for raw or do you just, here's the funny thing. It takes me so much longer to write stuff for other artists than it does for me to write for myself. Like Mm. just recently I had a song that I had to finish and I just, I've done it so many times that the language of Ra is the one that I reserved for the higher vibration. And I just sort of channel it. Honestly, Mm. it's very rare that the lyrics for a raw song or the top line melodies take me more than a half an hour. Mm. That's really cool. You also, um, you, I know you guys do that. Uh, the raw does this, uh, the police cover, but I, I saw you do like an acoustic cover of Roxanne and people should check that out. It's on YouTube. And I mean, you just sent, you hit these notes and I'm just like blown away. That's a really cool cover. I don't know if you can if release that on a record, but it, the YouTube version is really cool. Yeah, it's been out for a while. Our YouTube, our YouTube uh, page is is woefully viewed in terms of like until we put into corrupted it, we didn't we didn't have things that had over a hundred thousand views. I mean that has almost two hundred thousand, but 
the um but yeah we never again i never really was good with the online promotion thing of course you mm. know i sang for metal uh metal cohen yeah um in one of her projects but she, and she's the number one most subscribed drummer in the entire world so mm. in that regard i got on some good stuff but you know it took until like 2012 2013 to even meet her mm. yeah and then yeah so i did want to ask you uh your sister rachel so she she was she's the girl from total recall and falling down and that's pretty, that's gotta be pretty cool. Do you have any, uh, do you ever get to go to these movie premieres or anything like that? Or, uh, never went to, I went, no, never went to a movie premiere with her because I didn't really live in LA when she was making those big movies. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, she's my sister. So it's sort of, it's always like, you know, when I think of Rachel, I think of how annoying she is and how we like fight all the time, <laughs> but you know, but I have great memories of like meeting Arnold on, uh, on the set of total recall. I was in Mexico city when they were shooting, um, oh. and my other brother, David, uh, has, has been an assistant director for film for 30 years, almost 40 years. Wow. And he's, uh, you know, I've been on, I worked for him on movie sets. So I've, I've been around movies a lot. Yeah. And you filmed the, uh, your intercorrupted video, you filmed that here in Phoenix, right? I did. In, in suits. Phoenix, you guys were wearing, Phoenix. yeah, uh, it was like, yeah, it's right by the, uh, it used to be the Dodge theater. I think it's called something else now, but you guys are wearing suits. You said it was 112 and you had to wear those suits. Yeah. Yeah. That it, sounds... was, it was, uh, we started at five 30 in the morning to get ahead of the heat. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, because I was just so excited to make a video, we never, you know, Roz never really made a real video. Mm. Um, I was so excited that I really didn't notice how hot it was. Like Why did... I, I had a mask on, mm. I had the suit, yeah. I was sweating, but I just, I just didn't care. I was having okay. so much fun. And you guys, and you guys are not going to tour or are you going to do any live? Well, I... Yeah. I mean, we want to tour. Oh, okay. We, we, we just announced, well, our pre-sale just got started and, uh, we announced in the pre-sale that we're doing a virtual concert that's going to air the day the record comes out. Okay. What is the day the record? Do we have an official date on that? March 19th. March 19th. Okay. So people should definitely check that out. And then um, do you have a charity that you work with or you want to give a shout out to here? I mean, I, I've always defaulted to St. Joseph's, you know, the, the children's hospital. Okay. St. Joseph's uh, that's, that's not, so wait, not St. Jude's. There's, that's a different one. I think St. Joseph's is the one in New York. There's okay. one that is uh, a children's hospital. It's actually a hospital. Oh. If you go online, I think it's St. Joseph's. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I will put that in the link. So if people can throw a few bucks that way, that'd be good too. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything I missed? I think we covered it all, right? Nope. Just the pre-sale is going on. And if you're, if you're even mildly interested in hanging out with us, just go to our website, robband.net. It has all the links to everything. So if you're having a hard time finding us on Instagram, oh, okay. or finding us Perfect. anywhere, just robband.net has everything. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Sahaj. I appreciate it. No worries, dude. Thank you. All right. Cool. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. Sahaj Ticketin, frontman for the band Raw. Check out the band's website and the new single, Intercorrupted. It's a great song. Follow them on social media. Follow me on social media. And you can also subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts or my YouTube channel. I've got some great episodes on there like the Black Moods and PJ Farley both people that we talked about in this episode. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Enjoy the rest of your day. And remember, shoot for the moon.